As we approach the text this morning, it's good to be reminded of what the followers of Jesus have gone through as we approach the beginning of Luke 24. They've been to Good Friday and seen the desperation of that. They've lived through that Saturday, not knowing what is before them. To them, all of their hopes seem to be dashed. All of their hope was in this man, Jesus, and now he is dead. And it seems that their hopes are dead with them. Or at least that's what they thought, right? Luke 24, verse 1, let's read. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And and they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose. He ran to the tomb, stooping, looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Oh, Father, speak to us through your word this day. Convince us this day of the truth and the wonder of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. It was my freshman year in college as a history major, going to my very first history class, just a World Civ class, and very quickly it started. Our professor, an old professor that actually retired at the end of that year, he picked out three, it was maybe four of us in the class, quickly identified us as Christians, and throughout the course of the semester ridiculed us. How ludicrous it was that we believed what we believed. He found all sorts of weird ways to work it in. How could we believe this silliness that a man rose from the dead, he said. Our text confronts us with that question this morning. A question that I think the world thinks is quite silly, the idea that a man could rise from the dead. And we need to be confronted with it this morning. Did Jesus rise from the dead? I think my professor didn't want to believe it because he knew that it came with implications. If it were true, it changed everything, whether he wanted it to or not. If Jesus truly did rise from the dead, If he truly is who scripture says that he is, he is the only savior of the world. He is the only way that sins can be forgiven, the only way that we can be made right with God, the only way of obtaining eternal life. In our text, we see kind of two groups. We we see the women and we see the disciples. And what I want us to do is we're going to look at their 
unbelief in the story first. Then hopefully we'll see some of the proofs of the resurrection, and then finally we'll see the blessings of it first, the unbelief. The women, they, they go to the tomb early in the morning, and what are they doing? Verse 1, they, they, they take with them spices that they've prepared. They're going to anoint Jesus' body. They were not expecting to find what they found. They were going to mourn the loss of their friend and no doubt mourning their hopes that were, they actually had in that friend. But please, please don't miss that as the women go, they're going to the tomb as unbelievers. When they get there and they see the tomb opened and they look inside and they don't see Jesus, what is it? We read just that they're perplexed, they're, they're confused, they don't know what's going on. They're unbelievers. Later in our passage, the disciples are, are told what happened at the tomb. And what was their response? Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. Why? Why was it their instinct, the immediate instinct of both the women and the disciples to, to not believe? Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 18, Jesus said of this day, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and shamefully treated. He'll be spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Shouldn't the disciples, the women as well, all of his followers, shouldn't they have said, everything they said is coming true. He's been flogged. He's been killed. They've treated him so shamefully. He's been put on a cross. Shouldn't they have taken their chairs to that graveyard and sat outside the tomb waiting? That's not what they do. Why? Actually, the next verse in Luke 18 helps us to understand, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they didn't grasp what was said. They heard the words, but to them as they were hearing it, it just went one in one ear and out the other. It seemed like utter nonsense. Now, you might want to look in our, our passage. It ends with Peter, and, and Peter hears what the women say, and what does he do? He goes and runs to the tomb. Well, let's also see what he does. He, at the end of that, he, he goes away marveling. I don't think he's yet a believer either. He's still in wonder, much like the women are perplexed. Maybe he's another step forward towards belief but he's not quite there yet. He will certainly get there, but he's likely still a step or two away. And it's into the unbelief of Jesus's followers that the angels ask that penetrating question. Verse five, why do you seek the living among the dead? This question was meant to shake the women to call them out for their unbelief. Asking them, why? You know Jesus. You've heard everything that he told you. Why Why are you coming here today to mourn him? Do you not believe? That's what's underlying this question that the angels ask. We might be tempted to almost even look at this passage and think of the women, think of the disciples, and wonder, like, how could you not believe? I mean, he told you, and everything's now playing out exactly like he said it was going to play out. And yet, I'm reminded that you and I, we we have the full story, don't we? 
And sometimes, often, we struggle to believe as well, don't we? Even having the full story. Now, you may say, no, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead. Yes, but as you live out your life, does it always look like Jesus rose from the dead as you live out your life? Or does your life actually often look like you are seeking the living among the dead? Where do you seek life? Are you like me and often struggle and and think somehow that we can find life in the things of this world? Maybe you think things like, if, if I just had the right amount of money, if I just had the right job, if I, if I just had the right relationships, or better yet, if the people that I do have relationships with, if they actually acted like I wanted them to act, lived like I wanted them to live, then my life would be going so much better. And things would be good, and then I would have life. Then I could be happy. We have this tendency to look to this world for things, for happiness, and for joy that it can never bring us. Or or maybe you seek life as you try to find it in unhealthy relationships. You know, those relationships that you know aren't good for you, but you pursue them anyway because you you keep hoping maybe around the next corner it's going to somehow bring you life. Maybe it's in your addictions or your sin and you turn, keep turning, find yourself keep turning to these things and hope maybe this time it's going to bring to me life. Thinking somehow that the things that Scripture has told us will only bring death, we think maybe this time it will bring us life. Or maybe you seek life through your righteousness. You, you go to the law in hopes that somehow it's going to save you. If I can just be good enough, then God will be, have to be happy with me. Then he'll have to answer my prayers, right? He'll have to do what I want him to do, right? He'll have to bless me. We are so prone, my friends, to seek Jesus where he is not found. We seek him in the tomb of the things of this world. We seek him in the tombs of our unhealthy relationships and addictions and sin. We seek him even in the tomb of our own righteousness. And to this, the Apostle Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we're only seeking it in this life, you see Jesus and Jesus alone, his death His resurrection must be the complete and the total grounding of our salvation. He is the only place where true life can be found. The only place where we can find true joy is in him. But but how can we be confident that life can really be found in him? How can we know that this resurrection is really true? and that we can embrace him. I'm reminded of that old movie, 12 Angry Men. Uh, Henry Fonda was in it. Maybe some of you have seen it. But the whole point of the movie is that there's this boy who's on trial for killing his father. And it's the end of the trial. The jurors are in the jury room, and they are convinced that this 
boy did it. Henry Fonda's character, of course, is arguing, well, trying to argue for some sort of reasonable doubt. Things don't quite add up for him, but everyone else is totally convinced. And one of the jurors says, take a look at that knife. It's a very unusual knife. I've never seen one like it before. And and Henry Fonda says, but let's just, maybe it's possible that he didn't do it. And what does the juror say? No, it's not possible. It's impossible. He's come to it. He's decided. And so have the rest of the jurors decided what is true. Then Henry Fonda, he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a knife and he throws it on the table. A knife that's identical to the murder weapon. This one that supposedly there couldn't be another one of because it was so unusual. And they say, where did you get that? And he said, I was walking through the kid's neighborhood just last night. And I stopped in a pawn shop and bought it for a few dollars. And suddenly what happens? The jurors, they, 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 they begin to flip. Before that, they, they were so set on convicting him because they'd kind of come with their preconceived notions, already deciding what was true, refusing to listen to anything else. As we approach this text, we need to read it and we need to hear it for what it truly says. We need to hear God's word for what it claims to be. I think my history professor would have come to this text reading it, already convinced that it's impossible. It's impossible that a man could rise from the dead. Therefore, this can't be true. We need to come to it, though, and hear this text at his face value. And what does it tell us? How does it convince us, maybe, even of the truth and the veracity of it? First, we have several eyewitnesses, don't we? We have the women. We have Peter, who also ran to the tomb. And if we're at all questioning, in verse 10, Luke gives us a list of the women's names. Being a good historian, why does he do that? You don't believe me? Go ask these women. They'll tell you exactly what happened on that day. Now, the women get there. They found the the tomb open, right? And... Our text tells us in verse 4, they were perplexed. And just even that begins to add credibility to the story. Because if you're writing this story, you don't write it with all of the followers and stuff not expecting anything to happen. They go there assuming that there is no resurrection. Not even, it's not even a category for them when they go to the tomb that day. Just another one of those things that adds a little bit of credibility to it. Not to mention in that day, women would have not been credible witnesses in court. We might not like that idea too much, but that's just the case. And so, therefore, if you're writing this story to try to convince people in that day and age, this is not the way you write it. You don't start off with women being the first eyewitnesses. That's not helpful to your case. They're the the, the last ones that you would want to be the first witnesses, but yet they're the first witnesses. And look at the disciples. The disciples, they hear the account. What do they do in verse 11? It seemed to them to be an idle tale. And they didn't believe them. If you're trying to start a religion, and you're trying to come up with a story for it, you don't have all of your leaders from the beginning just completely doubting. Because as you read through the book of Luke, what what we actually see here is like, This paints the new leaders of the church in a very bad light. They have been told 
They've heard multiple times that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They've heard the promises, and yet they're not expecting it. They're presented here as dimwits, if you will, right? This is not the way you're going to build credibility for your story, but yet the fact that it, it just seems to be laid out so truthfully in ways that you wouldn't fabricate it, it just lends to that credibility. And not to mention, of course, that how do most of these disciples' lives end? But in their death. In their tragic deaths at the hands of others. And would they have gone to those deaths? Would they have been martyred for their faith if they didn't believe it? If they didn't believe that Jesus had truly risen from the dead? And then there's one other little small thing in here, verse 12. That much has been made of this verse. I won't make too much of it this morning, but what does Peter see? He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Not much, but it's just one of those little things that adds credibility. If Jesus' body had somehow been stolen or moved, that linen cloth wouldn't have been there. And it certainly wouldn't have been there like that, found in the empty tomb, undisturbed, all orderly. It's just one of those, another one of those things that just adds credibility to the story. But there's one more very important proof that we haven't talked about. And I think it's the most important one of all. And I think it's the one that Luke, in some way, wants to highlight for us. We see it in verse 6. What did the angel say? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. What happened in that moment? The women were reminded of Jesus' words and how this was a fulfillment of Jesus' own words, those words that we, we read a few minutes ago and, and that Jesus had spoken multiple times in their presence. And so verse 8 simply says, they remembered his words. What is it that brings the women from their unbelief to belief? It's not the missing body. It's not the grave clothes, not even this wonderful appearance of angels, not even a special appearance of Jesus standing before them. It's ultimately his words, Jesus' words, through the work of the Spirit that, that brings them from unbelief to belief. His words were the only thing that made sense of the situation, as Jesus said in John. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Where is life found? Life is found in Jesus' words. And it's Jesus' words that brought the women to faith. It's his words that should bring us to faith and encourage us in our faith. But do we really believe it? Does the word really have that high of a value for us? Most of you probably know who Bono is. Lead singer of U2, if you don't know. And lead singer of U2, if you don't know who that is, is like one of the biggest fans in, for a very long time. Anyway, um, there's a story about Bono and then another guy named Eugene Peterson. Some of you may know his name. 
Um, he's now gone on to be with the Lord, I believe. But um, he uh, did that modern paraphrase of the Bible called The Message that many of you may have seen at some point or another. Now, there's reports that, that at some point Bono gave an interview to Rolling Stone. And in the midst of that interview, he said something very kind about Eugene Peterson and how encouraging Eugene Peterson had been to him. One of Eugene Peterson's students come running to him with like this edition of Rolling Stone and says, look, look at what Bono is saying about you. And what did Eugene Peterson respond with? Bono who? He had no clue who he was. And so he goes after that and he does some research and he finds out like, oh, Bono's like actually a pretty big deal. And he became, as he says, as Eugene Peterson says, quite pleased that Bono knew who he was. Um, as you and I probably would be as well, maybe, maybe not. Anyway, later on, Bono sought a meeting with Peterson. And Eugene Peterson turned him down. Now, later they did meet, and there's a video made about that. And there's a fascinating interview where an interviewer's coming in and asking him, like, what? You, why did you not meet with Bono? Bono asked to meet with you and you didn't meet with him? The interviewer said this, you may be the only person alive who would turn down the opportunity. It's Bono for crying out loud. And to that, Eugene Peterson said, it was Isaiah. It was Isaiah. He was in the midst of the translating part for the message of the book of Isaiah. For Peterson, there was no comparison Bono or God's word? It's God's word for crying out loud. Is in a sense what Peterson was saying. Can you and I say the same thing? Do we have the same kind of love for God's word? And, and do we have the same kind of confidence in it? You see, ultimately... The only way to believe in Jesus, to believe in the resurrection, is through his word by the work of the Spirit. That is the ultimate proof. As Paul says in Romans, faith comes from he by hearing, and hearing through the words of Christ. What we need and what the women need, needed, right, and, and the disciples needed was not just an experience, but his word. And sometimes we, we, we so want and we would demand the experience. Like, what I really need is like Jesus, the resurrected Jesus standing in front of me. But we see the pattern in scriptures. No, what we need is his word. And just imagine, I mean, it actually plays out well in our life. I mean, we, we all have difficult times where we wrestle and things get very dark and we, we may ask God questions. We may ask him, why, God? Why this way? Why this? What is it that finally settles us down? What is it that finally brings peace to your heart? It's when we're reminded of God's word when we begin to cling to the truth of his words, that they're really true, that his promises are really true, the ultimate proof, my friends, is God's word. 
testifying to you and I this morning about the truth of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you hear the call of God's word to you this morning to stop seeking the living among the dead and the call, the call to believe in him? And we need to understand the word, and sometimes we can almost treat the resurrection as it's just a proof. But it's so much more. The resurrection comes with incredible blessings to believers. Our passage even remember, reminds us of it from the very beginnings. In verse 7, we, we, we see the angel say that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third and on the third day rise. What do we learn here? This, this resurrection thing, it's not an accident. The way that this plays out is according to plan. It's central to God's plan. Jesus was not just some teacher or prophet to then be mourned after he's gone. He was the son and is the son of the living God who is a living Savior. Thus that question, why do you seek the living among the dead? We do not gather on Sundays to mourn the loss of Jesus. We come to celebrate that he is alive. And it is that living Savior who has conquered sin and death. You see, the resurrection is not just some event to put on some timeline of history. It is the ultimate act of God's power and of his grace. It's the demonstration of of his ability to conquer sin and death, but not just a demonstration of that power. It is him actually conquering sin and death. So much so that what does the apostle Paul rejoice with at the end of 1 Corinthians 15? But death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And his resurrection doesn't just defeat sin and death, but it opens the way of new life for believers. You see, because it's in him that Paul tells us that it is in our wonderful union with him, the wonderful union that believers have with their Savior, that, Romans 6, We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What do we learn here? The wonder of the resurrection that his life is our life. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer, Paul says that is how closely you are connected with your Savior, joined to him, united with him, what he has, we have. United to the one that Paul goes on to tell us in chapter 4 of Romans was delivered up for our trespasses. And get this, raised for our justification. 
Now, we hear the words justification. We automatically, we usually just think of the cross. Paul here does something different. He, he talks about our, our justification as intimately connected with Jesus' resurrection. And, of course, our justification is that act of God's free grace where he declares us innocent. Based off of Jesus' record, Jesus takes our record, we get his record. And we're declared innocent in the courts of God. So what is Paul saying when he says that he was raised for our justification? It's this, that Jesus' death was not enough. That might sound strange to our ears at first. Of course, there's more that needs to come with it immediately following. But it's this, that Jesus' death without his resurrection is meaningless. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The fact that Jesus was raised to life after his death on the cross is a clear indication that his sacrifice has been accepted by the Heavenly Father as payment for our sins. And this means that, that, that through faith in Christ, we can be declared righteous before God, receiving that wonderful gift of eternal life. There's a wonderful moment in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, he's, he's been carrying this heavy sack, this heavy burden on his back meant to symbolize his sin. And as he approaches the cross, he passes by the empty tomb. And then as he gets to the foot of the cross, Bunyan says this, just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders, fell from off his back, and began to tumble down so that it continued to do till it came to the mouth of the empty tomb where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Bunyan here gives us a picture of how Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. As the burden of our sins are swallowed up in the tomb, the resurrection today should give us you and I, a great and an incredible hope. Knowing that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is alive. And the resurrection, of course, it points us to our future, doesn't it? That one day, we too, if we are in Christ, we will rise from the dead. We too will have resurrection bodies and we will spend all of eternity with him. With the resurrection should come great hope as we live out life in this world, a life where things are often difficult, we often suffer, yet we can have a great hope because we know that death and sin and sorrow are not the last word because he is risen. The resurrection is a beautiful, life-changing, transforming event that is testified to us this morning through God's Word. And it doesn't come today just to tell us facts of what happened so that we can be reminded, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. 
It comes today telling us how the resurrection changes everything. It comes today to transform our lives so that we might live as those who have been freed from sin and death. That we carry those burdens on our back no more. They have fallen down the hill and they've been swallowed up by the tomb. Let's not miss this day, the wonder of the resurrection. As I was reading about the resurrection this week, I stumbled on a quote and I want to share it. What a glorious message the empty tomb conveyed. The Lord is risen indeed. All the promises and blessings of salvation lie wrapped in this wonderful news. The best news ever heard came from a graveyard. Oh, victorious resurrection. Death is disarmed. Sin is subdued. The world is overcome. Satan is trodden underfoot. The grave is sanctified. Hell is conquered. And the old man is mortified. Do you see it and embrace it? Redemption is accomplished. Eternal life is secured. Justice is satisfied. The curse of the law is buried. Guilt is paid. Debt is canceled. God's amen on the all-sufficient work of Christ is loudly declared. All of salvation is verified. Christianity is true. Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. Do you believe this? Or are you here today seeking the living among the dead? Are you coming this morning and maybe just perplexed? Maybe on your way and you're marveling a bit like Peter. Or do you this morning know and believe this day that Jesus' death was your death and that his resurrection is your resurrection. Do you believe this day that he is risen? Let's pray. Father, oh, how we thank you for sending your son to die for us and to rise from the dead. Jesus, we thank you for the way in which you conquered sin and death, rising from the dead. Holy Spirit, we thank you. We pray, would you apply God's word to our hearts this day so that we might truly believe and live as those who believe and not live seeking the living among the dead. Father, help us to move more each and every day from unbelief to belief. Would you grow in us this day a wonder, a wonder as we contemplate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
and it's in his name, the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Let's stand.